you have a, a Bible, please take it and, and go to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table there. Um, feel free to grab one of those. But Romans 8, that we read the first part during our um, scripture reading, 1 through 17, and we're going to focus on verses 18 through 30. We just wrapped up our series on Habakkuk, which focused on the issue of suffering um, in the world and how we are to respond to that, how we are to understand that in light of the gospel, in light of who God is. Um, and so I want to go to Romans 8, 18 to 30, because I think there's sort of a New Testament piece that's maybe missing from Habakkuk that would be good for us to sort of close out this um, sort of meditation on, on suffering um, We've opened the, past, the sermons the past three weeks by recognizing the reality of, of suffering and pain in this world, uh, which is kind of an obvious truth, isn't it? I think we all know that, that life is, is hard. Um, I thought, I didn't know these words were from a poem, but Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem called The Rainy Day. And in the first two verses, he's sort of lamenting and mourning the fact that there are some days that are dark and dreary. And in the third verse, this is what he says. He says, be still, sad heart, and cease repining. Behind the clouds is the sun still shining. Thy fate is the common fate of all. And this is the line I knew. Into each life, some rain must fall. Some days must be dark and dreary. And so it would seem that suffering is inevitable. It's just part of, of the human experience. We've observed in the past that uh, Wesley from The Princess Bride was right. He said, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Uh, I think that's true. But for those of us who are, Christ, or who are followers of Christ, who are followers of Jesus, we can go beyond saying just that suffering is, um, is inevitable. For the Christian, suffering is not just inevitable, it's actually indispensable. It is vital, it's, it's crucial, it's necessary to our lives. It's not just something that we, have, that, that, that we face, that it's going to happen, but it's something that we must face. It's necessary to our growth in Christ. If the character of Jesus is going to be formed in us, then we must suffer. Suffering is to discipleship as Rennet is to cheese. Now, I never knew anything about rennet. Maybe you don't know anything about rennet, but this week I learned about it. We were reading with our family, um, Little House in the Big Woods by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Maybe you've watched the TV show, um, Little House on the Prairie. But in that chapter, she was describing how her family made cheese. I didn't realize how you make cheese, and I looked up some things on this. But uh, in the cheese-making process, even today, there's this thing. It's an enzyme called rennet, and it is indispensable to cheese-making. Um, and the only place, especially in the 1800s, that rennet could be found is in the stomach of a young calf that's been fed nothing but milk. So this calf has, has had no other food except for milk. And in that calf's stomach, this enzyme called rennet is there. And when rennet is placed in milk, it has this property that, that, um, that causes the curd to form and separates out the whey. And that's essential to the cheese-making process. Without rennet, there is no cheese. You can only get cheese product like Velveeta. That's not cheese. I don't know if you knew that. There was no rennet used in the making of Velveeta. So if you want real cheese, you got to have rennet. But what stuck with me about that process is, especially you think about in the late 1800s as folks are trying to survive, that if you wanted cheese, 
you had to kill a calf. That was necessary for the cheesemaking process to get this rented. So the families would come together and they would determine to make cheese for a group of people because someone was going to have to sacrifice this animal. Now, I know it's a strange parallel, but it, it would seem that for those of us who are, are Christians, if we want to grow in Christ-likeness, suffering is like rennet. you, you got to have it. Without suffering, it, we will not become more like Christ. Suffering is indispensable. It is, it is essential. Not just inevitable. It's not that it's just going to happen. It has to happen if we want to grow in Christ-likeness. That's what Romans 8 16 to 17 essentially says, isn't it? So we read these verses and we're going to focus on 18 through 30, but look at verses 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Comma. And there's this phrase. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified. So Paul has talked about there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are heirs with Christ. We are sons and daughters of God if we would suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified. And it's in light of that truth that you have to suffer with Him in order to be glorified. You have to suffer with Him in order to be made like a son that Paul writes verses 18 through 30. And in light of that, he's saying that um, we don't want to simply survive suffering, but we want to actually thrive in the midst of it. There's a way to rejoice in suffering and, and pain. There's a way to even embrace it as a companion in our lives that is working for our good. It has the appearance of death, but it in fact is life. I started reading a, a Christian classic called Hind's Feet in High Places. I don't know if you've ever read that, but it's much like Pilgrim's Progress where this character, much afraid, is going up to the high places. And on the journey, the, 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 the shepherd, Jesus, takes her to the place where she's going to begin this journey. And he's not going to be with her, but he says, I have two companions for you, and they're going to help you on the journey. And their names are Sorrow and Suffering. If you want to get to the high places, you have to walk with sorrow and suffering. And much afraid is scared of that and yet begins this journey and walks with them. And I haven't finished it yet, but we'll see how it, how it ends. But Paul here is saying that, that suffering is inevitable. And, and Paul's a guy that knew suffering well. And so he's going to give us some encouragement here. He's going to tell us how we can take heart in suffering, in the suffering that's not only inevitable, but is actually indispensable to our lives as Christians. So the question we're trying to ask is, how can, we, how can we rejoice, how can we even grow in the midst of suffering? Let's read Romans 8, 18 through 30, and get this perspective, renew our minds about what suffering is and what it's doing in our lives. Paul writes in verse 18, For I consider, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now there is much in these verses. There's more than one sermon, but that's what we're going to have this morning. Um, We're asking this question, how can we rejoice How can we grow even in the midst of suffering? We saw last week that what Habakkuk saw about the character and the faithfulness of God carried him through suffering. And and Paul, in a sense, is going to kind of pull back the curtain and show us sort of the inner workings of what suffering is doing. It's kind of how what's the process of suffering? What's God doing in the midst of that? And he's given to give us some big principles to understand that. And the first thing that that he tells us, this truth to renew our minds, is that our present suffering cannot compare to the future glory. Our present suffering cannot compare to the future glory. That's verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says that what we're facing right now, the pain, the heartache, the difficulty, it's not even worthy to compare to what is coming. They're not even in the same category. It's like comparing Totina's frozen pizza with Lumalnati's. Now, not all of you have had Lumalnati's, so you'll have to take my word for it, but they're not even in the same category. It's it's like they're not even both pizza. Um, And Paul says that what we're currently struggling with, even the hardest things in life, it means absolutely nothing in light of what is coming. And just like maybe you've never experienced Lumanadis, none of us have ever experienced what is ahead for us, the the glory that is to be revealed. And so we have to take Paul's Spirit-inspired word for it, that... It's going to be way better. It's going to be so much better that, that what we're facing right now, it does, it's, it's not even comparable. There's no comparison to what we struggle with now and the glorious things that will be revealed to us. And he speaks of this, this coming glory in, broad, in a broader sense than, than we often do. Often I think when we think about um, the, the coming glory, this revelation of God and, and the return of Christ and the setting up of the kingdom, we, we think about it in very personal terms. So I am saved. God is going to save me. He will redeem me. He will resurrect my body and I will be with him joyfully forever in eternity. And all oh, that's true. But... There's so much more. And so Paul begins when he's talking about this, he begins by speaking of the redemption of all creation. The redemption of all creation. If we think about salvation as Jesus setting straight everything that the fall has made crooked, then we begin to see that it's not just human beings that are in bondage under sin because of of Adam and Eve, but in fact all of creation is imprisoned under sin. He says here that in verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
So, so Paul is, is giving this idea, he's giving creation sort of an emotion, a, a longing, and he says that the, the earth and the sky and, and the animals and the plants and all that God has made has been subjected to, to futility. It's been suppressed. It's been kept from existing in the way that God intended it to. So it, the, the world we live in is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not how God originally intended. Sin has scarred and, and marred all of, all of creation. The sin of Adam and Eve brought a curse on the ground, Genesis 3 says. And the effects of that curse exist even to this day. And Paul says that creation itself is personified here as awaiting the day of Christ's return. And it's awaiting it like a, like a prisoner awaits the day of his release. Just imagine being in jail and wanting to get out. Or it's like a student waiting for the first day of summer break and, and the freedom that's going to come from that. That's what they're longing for. There's this freedom. And creation is longing for this day when the, the chains of sin are gone, when, when, when the handcuffs of the fall are taken off, and it is free to glorify God in the way that it's supposed to. I think that's astonishing, isn't it? Because when you think about creation... When I think about creation, I think if anything in this world reflects the majesty and the glory and the greatness of God, it's, it's the creation. But the point here is, is that it's not even living up to its full potential. Creation itself is not living up to its full potential. The, the grandeur of, of Niagara Falls and the beauty of a sunset and, and the breathtaking beauty of, of snow-capped mountain peaks, it's... It's, it's not even all that it's supposed to be. It's not, it's not as great as God intended it to be. There's, there's more. It's subject, and think about how we feel underneath the fall, how imprisoned we feel. Creation is the exact same. So imagine what, what it will be like when it is redeemed. Because right now death is, is reigning. There's disease. There's pollution. There's destruction abounding in the world. Um, you can go into creation and you're in a beautiful place beholding wonderful things and suddenly a horn just starts beeping like crazy, right? <laughs> and it was beautiful until the horn just started distracting you from everything that was going on. And so, I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's not as, as great as it could be. And so the earth, it says here, is groaning in pain and expectation. Groaning, he says here, like a woman in childbirth. Now, I've never had a baby. But I've been around for the birth of four, and I know that it's painful. And so creation is long is, is in pain and groaning like that, but it's enduring it with the expectation of something to come. So a woman goes through labor because of the joy of a baby coming. Uh, and that's, that's the beauty of it. And so a, a woman can have a baby and, and then say, I want to do that again. And have an, and go through all that pain again because of the joy that is coming. And so creation is is thinking about this. Is thinking about what is coming. As creation is in pain, but it has hope. It says, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so in all this, as he's thinking about this broad picture of creation, Paul is reminding us that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed one day. And he reminds us that creation itself is suffering under sin, and one day it's going to be restored to its original purpose. And the redemption of all creation actually hinges on the full redemption of God's children. 
That's the next thing he talks about, is the full redemption of God's children. What is creation longing for? Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, so creation and we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for what? For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So creation and we are longing for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. Now, wait a minute, aren't we already adopted as sons? Isn't that what we read in, in Romans eight fourteen? right? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, aren't we already adopted? This, again, is that, that, that helpful distinction that we have to make between the already and the not yet of the kingdom, that there are things that we know now and things that we will fully know, that we experience adoption now, but we will fully experience it in the future. That's what Paul says here. It's the first fruits of the Spirit. So th- there's, there's something that we have tasted. There's the, it, it's, we, we know it in part. The Spirit dwelling in us, working joy in us right now is happening, and it will happen. It's, it's just beginning. It's like if, if you're making a cake and you get to test the batter, or if you're a kid and you get to, to lick one of the beaters. It's, it's this foretaste. But the cake's coming, and, and the cake is even better. And that's, in a sense, what we, what we have right now in creation, in salvation, in adoption, that, that we are adopted, but we, we will be fully adopted, that we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We are redeemed, we are being redeemed, and we will be redeemed. That's, the word redemption is in verse 23. We ourselves are the first fruit of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And this idea, redemption has the idea of release from captivity, of, of deliverance, of, of freedom. So creation feels enslaved, and we feel enslaved. Just as creation is longing for freedom, we want to be free. We are free, Galatians 5.1, that, that we, we are set free from the curse of the law, from bondage to sin, but don't we all still want to be free? I mean, I feel enslaved so often, and so much of that enslavement, especially in light of suffering, is due to what? It's due to our bodies. And that's what he says here. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies, of our physical bodies. We, we live in a world where, where disease and cancer and pain, are, they're just always a threat. We suffer. We suffer not only when death threatens us, but when death threatens someone that we love. When someone that we love, when their physical body gives out, that, then we suffer. Our brothers and sisters around the world face persecution because of their belief in Christ. They have to endure physical pain and even death for the name of Christ. Sickness causes pain. It causes issues in our lives. Not just when we're sick, but when other people are sick. My girls were supposed to have their first ballet, ballet practice on Friday, and their teacher was sick. I can't tell you how devastated they were. They wanted to go so bad. But, but suffering, it affects us. It affects us, and so much of it is due to these bo- the body that we have, because it's not what it's supposed to be. And so we join in the groans of, of creation. We long for the redemption of our bodies. We, we sigh and we groan in the face of the effects of the fall. And, and it's right for us to long for the return of Christ, for the restoration of all things, for the redemption of our bodies, because this is our hope. He says there in verse 24, And in this hope we were saved. 
in this hope we were saved. This, this is this is at the core of of the gospel. That the the hope of the good news is that death will be defeated, that Christ will raise us up and make all things new and right in a world free from pain and suffering. What are we longing for? We're not we're not longing. At, we talked about this on, on Friday night at the youth. We're not longing to be disembodied spirits floating in the clouds somewhere. We want new bodies on a new earth that exists the way that God intended it to be. That's what we long for. That's, that's built into us. We want that. And it's right. That's the hope that we're saved into. Now he says hope that is seen is not hope. We don't know that. What do you hope for? Who hopes for what he sees? Nobody hopes for what they see. Because they have it. They don't have to hope for it anymore. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there's an eagerness. We have this desire for the redemption of our bodies. We long for that. And so when suffering and sickness and pain hit, we, we say, oh, God, we long for the day when this is over. When you would return and make everything right and we would get rid of these bodies and you give us new bodies and we don't have to deal with this anymore. And when creation itself is freed, we long for that. And we do it, but we wait with patience. That's what he says. We wait for it with patience. So we're like a child going to sleep on Christmas Eve. That Oh, we're so excited for this day to come. But we know we have to wait. Let's be patient. Let's wait until that ultimate redemption is accomplished. So Paul paints this huge picture of what God is doing in salvation history and, and through redemption. And, and all of this is, is to remind us that, that creation is imprisoned because of sin, that all of humanity, apart from Christ, is enslaved to sin. But the good news of the gospel breaks the bonds of sin. Jesus, through his death and resurrection and ascension, has set in motion a salvation that will redeem and restore not just us, but the entire created world. And it's going to happen when he returns to judge the world in righteousness. And then our, our adoption as children of God, our freedom from these bodies will be fully realized. We will be redeemed. And this is the hope that we have. If we are in Christ, we have hope. And this should fill us with an eager anticipation that would carry us through suffering. We, we are to patiently wait and endure suffering in this earth because our focus is our focus is on the day of Christ's return. And we know that when He comes, the things that we face now will not even compare to what we experience. That hope sustains us. We can, we can rejoice in suffering knowing something, knowing that the present suffering cannot compare with the glory that is to come. So when we face suffering, we say, this is so hard, but it doesn't even compare. There's, there's no comparison to what is coming. That's not all. It's not the only thing that Paul gives us to sustain us, help us thrive and rejoice even in the midst of suffering. The second thing he tells us is that the Spirit is praying for us. <laughs> the Spirit is praying for us. Verse 26, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. At the picnic last week, we did some rounds of tug-of-war. And as we divided into teams, there were some people that, that looked around at their team and they thought, 
boy, am I glad that guy, that that guy is on my team and not pulling against me. I'm glad that he's going to take the anchor for us. And and there's a sense in which we say that with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit is on your side. God himself, who indwells you, is on your team. The Holy Spirit is helping us in the midst of our weakness. And he helps us specifically in the area of prayer. He helps us in prayer. Now, I'll take all the help I can get in prayer, because prayer is hard. And, and this is so such an encouragement. He helps us in our weakness, it says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What is our weakness? It's the next phrase. We do not know what to pray for. As we, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what we're, we're supposed to say. And, and this, this inability to pray is often tied to times of suffering, that we just don't know what to pray. And here it's tied to this idea that we don't fully know the will of God. We don't know what God is doing. Suffering comes into our lives and we say, what are you doing, God? And we have a lack of knowledge. Why did this happen? That's our weakness. Brothers and sisters, let's just agree that there are times when we don't know how to pray, right? I think we've all experienced that, where you get on your knees and there are no words. There, there, are, there are groans, there are sighs, there is weeping, there is confusion. We don't know how to pray. It's okay to be there. I don't think that this is an excuse for us to never pray, but it's also it's an encouragement that sometimes we don't know what to say, and 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 that's when the Spirit comes in and helps us as we groan in pain and confusion. We find comfort in the fact that the Spirit is interceding for us with with groans of His own. He is pleading for us before the Father. He is our advocate, going to Jesus, our advocate, who goes to the Father on our behalf. And here's what we know about the Spirit. We can be sure of this about the Spirit, that the Spirit knows the will of God. The Spirit knows what God is doing. So what's our weakness? I don't know what God is doing. And so I don't know how to pray. But the Spirit does. And so the Spirit intercedes on our behalf and He makes up for that weakness because He knows what to pray. He knows what God is doing. He can pray for us according to the will of the Father. Not only does He know the will of God, but He knows our hearts. God is the one who searches our hearts. And this is meant to be encouraging. The comfort that we draw from this is that the Spirit and the Father, they know our desire, even in suffering, to be like Christ. We want the fruit of the Spirit formed in our lives. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the Spirit knows that. The Spirit knows that we desire that, even when we're kind of lost in the suffering of life. The Spirit knows that what we want is to be made more like Christ. And so, when we don't know how to pray, because I think so often when suffering comes, what do we want to pray? Lord, get me out of this. Could this just be as short as possible, please? God knows that we want to be formed into the image of Christ. And the Spirit intercedes for us on our behalf, and it may be that the Spirit isn't praying, yeah, Lord, end this now, but rather, God, give them strength to endure this. Teach them what they need to know in the midst of this suffering and the trial. Because the Spirit knows what God's doing. We don't know. I don't know what God's doing. The Spirit does, and the Spirit is praying for us in the midst of that. And He knows our hearts. He knows that we desire to grow in Christ-likeness. And so we, we have comfort in that. 
The Spirit is interceding for us in ways that we don't know and all for our good and for God's glory. So we can rejoice in the midst of suffering because we know that the Holy Spirit, who knows the will of God and knows the desires of our hearts, that He has in fact placed there, He knows all of that and He is praying for us. And then closely tied to that, the way that we can thrive, that we can rejoice, that we can find joy in suffering is this final truth that all things are working together for our good. So we we can rejoice and thrive in suffering because the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. Because the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And then finally, because all things are working together for our good. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28, that's a favorite verse of many, isn't it? It tells us that for those of us who are loved by God, who are called according to His purposes, that everything in our lives is being used for our good. The question we have to ask is, what is good? What is the good that God is working for us? Because I think that Romans 8.28 can fall into the same category as Philippians 4.13. I can do all things... Through Christ, who strengthens me. What's the all things there? The all things that Paul is talking about is I know how to be content in good circumstances and in bad circumstances. But we've taken it and said, I can do all things. I can run a marathon. I can lose 10 pounds. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. And of course, God can strengthen us to do those things, but that's not the point. So in the context here, what is Paul talking about as far as the good things? Because we'll take that and we'll say, well, God's going to call, cause all things to work together for my good. So if I lose $20, it means I'm going to find 40 in my winter coat later this year because I left it there. Or if I get in an accident, if, if my car breaks down, it's because God is protecting me from an accident that's further. And maybe He is. Maybe He's going to do all these things. But what is the good that He is, is working? Because we can turn this sort of into kind of like a, a Pollyanna thing. Uh, where we have unrealistic expectations about how great life is always, is always just going to work out. Just glass is always half full. We're just looking on the positive. But sometimes life is just hard. What is God doing in the times where we just don't understand why? how is he working this situation for my good? If you get a diagnosis or, 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 or you face death or just suffering and pain, chronic pain in your life... God, what are you doing? How is this working for my good? I don't understand. So what's he talking about here? I think it's spelled out in verses 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What did he predestine us to? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 29 assures us that God has called us And he has determined to conform us to the image of his son. That's the good. God is always working for our good. All suffering, every trial in life, God is using it to make us look more like Jesus. To conform us to the image of his son. The good that God is working in us in every circumstance is to make us more like Christ. It's working in such a way that the fruit of the Spirit will be formed in us. And if we follow the chain of the verses then, those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. 
And, and that's the, the ultimate way that we are conformed to the image of Christ. That there is a day coming where, where right now we are slowly being conformed, but there will be a moment in a twinkling of an eye where we are made to be like Christ. First John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now you are God's child. You are reflecting God in some way. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But there's something coming. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. So we're on this, this, this process of being formed into the image of Christ. And, and it's happening now. And it will happen fully at glorification. But in the present, it's happening. And how is it happening? Through suffering. And through hardship. That's, that's, that's 817. And if children then, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Those two words, with Him. We're doing it with Christ. Jesus is calling us to follow the same path that He followed. He is, He was not glorified until after He suffered. And so too, we must suffer before we will be glorified. So God truly is working all things together for your good, if you are a child of God. But what is the good? The good is that He is making us look more like Christ. And if, if we are God's children, then this is the deep desire of our hearts, isn't it? That, that we want, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be conformed to the image of His Son. But I don't want to suffer. <laughs> I, I really don't want to. That's, uh, that's just who we are. But the, the truth is that, that God says, and, and, and that's where that illustration from that book where uh, just this character, much afraid, comes down the path and there's these two figures standing there. These are the ones that are going to take you up the path to the high places. What are their names? Sorrow and suffering. He said, I don't really want to go to the high place anymore. Do we want to be more like Christ? Then suffering is necessary. We have to face it. And, and, but what's amazing is if we are God's children, then slowly He conforms our mind to that. And, and so we can say something like, like in James chapter 1, He says, Brothers, sisters, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Because you know something. You know that the trying of your faith is going to work patience. And let patience have its perfect work so that you can be perfect and complete and, and lacking in nothing. Why do we rejoice in the trial? Because we're some sort of strange people that just, we like pain? No. It's, it's because Christ is, is, because God gives us that so that he might make us perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And I love being like Jesus more than I like comfort. And if we love being like Christ more than anything else, then we will take pain and suffering. Because that's what it's going to take for us to be more like Jesus. All things will work together for that good of making you more like Christ. That's supernatural though. <laughs> to face suffering in that way, it's something that God has to work in us to give us this desire to, to want to be more like Jesus more than we want to be comfortable. And it takes renewing our minds. It takes sitting down in, an, in the midst of a trial, knowing it beforehand, so that when it comes we say, okay, God causes all things to work together for good. And the good that He is working in me is somehow 
He's going to make me more like Jesus through this suffering, through this trial. So I will go down this path because that's what I want. And then there's that beautiful truth that we just backtrack to the Spirit. And the Spirit knows that that's what you want. The Spirit knows that deep down, even though sometimes we, we fight against suffering, that we, I do really want to be like Jesus. I want to grow in Christ like this. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the Spirit knows that and the Spirit prays for us according to that, even when we can't. Even when you can't say, yes, God, I love this trial. Or yes, God, bring pain and suffering into my life so I can be more like you. The Spirit's praying for you. The Spirit's interceding on your behalf in the midst of that. And if we just keep going back, when it gets hard, we look forward to this day when whatever we're going through, it won't even be comparable. But this whole creation is, is going to be transformed completely. Everything that we see is going to be it's going to look like a shadow compared to what God is forming in us. We receive these, these new bodies where there is no pain and, and, and no more suffering, and we exist for the reason that we were made. Because this is what we long for. This is, this is the hope that we have been saved to. And one day we'll be fully realized. But until then, we've got to walk down these paths. We've got to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But we know that Jesus is with us, that He is walking with us, and that on the other side, it's more magnificent than we could ever dream. It's more beautiful than we could ever dream. And as we're in that valley, the Spirit is praying for us. The Spirit knows our hearts. The Spirit knows the will of God, and He's He's working for us. And so when we don't know how to pray, and all we can do is, is groan and sigh and weep, we know God is praying for us on our behalf. He's interceding by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know we can say, God, I will take this suffering because I want to be like Jesus. And you're going to make me like Jesus. I don't want to just get through it. So often how we look at suffering. Don't just try to get through it. God, what do you want me to, how do you want me to look more like Jesus because of this? You're working for my good. I believe that you are working for my good. Help me to see how you are working for my good. What shall we say to these things, Paul says? What, what do you say to that? What, how, how do we respond? If God be for us, who can be against us? Isn't that the, the truth that we hold on to? If, if God is for us, what do we have to fear? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us, how, how will he not also with him freely give us all things?